Hi, I'm Carlin Appy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Nick Rasmussen about his new book, Gene Jockeys, Life Science and the Rise of Biotech Enterprise. This came out in 2014 with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Now, this is a book about the emergence of entrepreneurial biologists in the last decades of the 20th century. So it explores the development of five major inventions, including um, lots of different kinds of drugs that you may have heard of and some you may not have heard of that take us through the different kinds of relationships that grew up around um, this coming together of commerce and economy and um, biology and biotech research in the 20th century. So what Rasmussen does is he charts not just what's happening in labs and at companies, but also what's happening in the courtroom as arguments over um, the ability or not to patent some of these inventions play out in really interesting ways and in ways that, as you'll hear in the course of the interview, had pretty serious ramifications for science policy. So this is a book for, among other things, anyone who's interested in Um, the ways that the kind of recent modern history of biotech has informed science policy and really um, what we can take from this history to better inform science policy that we're making in the future. So it's a really interesting modern history. Um, It was really great to talk with Nick about it, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much for listening. I'm here to talk with Nicholas Rasmussen about his new book, Gene Jockeys. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Nick, and thanks very much for negotiating a time difference between Vancouver and Sydney and also for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward. Uh, hi, Carla. Yeah, thanks for um, taking interest in my book. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Of course. So, Nick, could you start us off as is kind of traditional for the channel by just saying a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to want to work on the history of biology and biotech? Um, Well, I I grew up in Boston, surrounded by famous scientists and, um, you know, uh, beginnings of kind of high-tech industry. And, um, you know, because all the science going on around me and also the usual stuff uh, like Star Trek and whatever, um, and like grandfather also was a science uh, teacher, former scientist. I sort of got inspired to become a scientist. And, um, and already by my teenage years, I was working in um, biology labs because, you know, it was not that hard in Boston. There's always hiring lab assistants and bottle washers and that kind of thing. Uh, and doing actual research, but, you know, and at Harvard Med School in a lab by the time I was 15. Um, so I was, you know, really into it. Um, but by the end of college, so after, you know, probably whatever, eight years in biolabs already, um, I had, you know, started to ask questions almost like a, a premature uh, midlife crisis, you know. I started to, to you know, wonder, wonder about science, like the, the, the sort of the psychological impulse to do it, which I guess comes from, you know, reflecting on my own motives. Um, also, the kind of the cultural rationale, you know, why, why society... Um, uh, valued science so much and supported it so generously, and also science's you know privilege uh, as a you know as the, what determines the official truth. Um, so uh, I had almost I was almost finished college though with a with a biology degree. So I only had a year you know, and then my coursework in the last year I sort of got into um, uh, some history and philosophy of science. Uh, but um, but then after that I wanted more, and so 
to make a very long story short, for the next uh, 10 years after, after graduating college at, at 21, um, I did graduate school both in biology and in HPS, kind of um, wow. flip-flopping between the two about equally and schizophrenically, and, uh, and ended up in, um, in HPS, particularly history of biomedical science, which is, of course, the I already had a PhD in, um, in developmental biology at this stage, so I knew, knew about it as a scientist. But um, I didn't take up HPS after I finished training as a scientist. Um, all my advanced training as a scientist occurred after I'd already done um, uh, three years of grad school in, in HPS. Wow, that's really interesting. That's kind of the, um, a really interesting variation on how we usually get into the field of history of science, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't make up my mind. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's great. Um, that's great. And I think in a kind of, um, intimate knowledge and familiarity with a lot of the kinds of processes, um, that you're describing in the book really comes through in a way that is not always the case, um, for a historian of science. And so clearly that dual background and kind of training really paid off, I think, um, in the context of this book. Well, thanks. I, I try to choose topic areas where, um, where my background, uh, you know, in, in um, biology and other kind of technical experiences and advantage, but uh, I, I also try not to be too sort of blinded and, you know, too much of an insider as well. Right. So the book that we're here to talk about today explores how biotech emerged when molecular biology, as you put it, met the business world in the 1970s and 80s. And it looks at five of the first products of genetic engineering. So we'll get to that over the course of our conversation about the chapters. So how did you come to focus on this particular topic and and want to write a monograph length project about it? How does this fit within your larger research trajectory? Um, well, well, of course, the influence of commerce on the aims, methods, and, and the content of science, that's a classic problem for HPS, you know, going back at least to, to Boris Hessen and the International uh, Conference in History of Science in 1931. Um, it's also one of the few questions that, that we ask in science studies that's taken seriously by scientists themselves. Um, almost all my work in, in HPS has addressed this issue about commerce in some kind of way. Like in picture control and my other um, work on the history of electron microscopy, I look at the influence of commercial um, instruments and instrument makers on the scientific method and uh, sort of style of, of knowledge as well as the social structure in the emerging field of molecular biology um, right after World War II. In, um, in On Speed, uh, my book on the history of amphetamine and also um, other work on the history of clinical trials, I look at the evolution of the pharmaceutical industry's role in sort of co-producing uh, clinical practice and biomedical knowledge uh, in general over time. Um, so that's a changing role, right, that the pharmaceutical industry plays from the 1930s to, to the present day. Um, and so, like, for many years, I've actually been building a larger argument that in the U.S., at least, there's a century-long tradition of um, intimate relations between university life scientists and the business world. This early Cold War period of generous public support for, and you know, valorization of pure and basic research from about 1950 into the 70s, that's the aberration requiring explanation, not the end of the events um, and that, you know, era of generous support for basic research and the way biologists responded, as described in, in gene jockeys. So, um, a lot of my work's been about this, uh, this, this longer history of evolving relations between the business world and, and university life science in the U.S., and this is sort of you know, the, the third book um, I've done that also addresses that issue. Um, so anyway, uh, 
the general issue is how commerce can uh, affect the AIM method and contents of science. And the biotech revolution in the late 70s is a paradigmatic and supposedly dramatic example of commerce reshaping basic science. Um, commentators at the time said so, both pro and con, um, and, and also recent critics. You know, I'm thinking of, um, of Phil Murawski in his, in his um, important book, Science Mart. So it is the classic example, in a way, of, of commerce intruding on, on, uh, on science. So, um, and, and by studying that particular instance, which you know, is the kind of phenomenon I'm interested in generally, but, but by studying that particular um, uh, episode, I'm leveraging my background knowledge in post-war molecular biology, that, you know, my, my work that I've already done, like in picture control, and also my work that I did in, in, um, in history of amphetamines on pharmaceutical industry sponsorship of research. And I moved that all one f- forward one generation from the 40s and 50s to the 70s and 80s to study this sort of uh, episode in which the separate domains of pharmaceuticals and molecular biology merged. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Oh, um, go on. Well, also, I mean, just personally, just to go back to what we were talking about before, I remember this stuff, right? I was, I was there in Boston when Biogen was, was founded. I was, um, I was doing uh, research, honors research in molecular biology labs around 1980 at the University of Chicago as an, as an undergraduate. So I, I was there at, like a fly on the wall in, in the lab uh, watching this, this kind of stuff uh, unfold. And also the, the kind of lab training I received in molecular biology at the time uh, which, which is not something I've pursued, so I'm kind of stuck uh, in my mind. Molecular biology lab procedures are what I learned around 1980-81 because I didn't pursue the field much further than that in um, you know, cloning. Uh, I, I'm like out of a time machine where I understand what they were doing in the lab probably better than the people themselves do now because they have kept up with the field in a, in a way that I haven't. So I'm, I'm, I'm leveraging kind of my own personal ex- experience um, as well, I hope. Great. Thank you so much. Now, the title of the book is Gene Jockeys, and the introduction takes us in um, to a chapter that's titled Biology's Day at the Races. So maybe this is a good place to start as we get into really the fabric of the book. So can you start us off by talking a little bit about this metaphor, this notion of gene jockeys? How does this sort of race, um, a day at the races, race-related, gene jockey-related metaphor shape the work here? And, and how did you and why did you choose that kind of metaphor as an organizing um, structure for the work? Um, well, the, the gene jockeys metaphor for genetic engineering and genetic engineers um, was commonplace you know, around 1980, and it still is fairly common. But it stuck in my mind the way um, for fellow biology PhD students at Stanford um, when I was there, but the way they were using it in the late 80s. By this stage, I wasn't doing cloning-type work. I was doing a, another kind of uh, biology, plant developmental biology. Um, but some of my friends were, were doing this kind of more biotech-relevant stuff, and, uh, and I, I saw the way they used it. Some used it sort of as a mocking term, you know, so-and-so is just a gene jockey. And some, who could be called gene jockeys, used it kind of semi-apologetically but defiantly in a way that I thought was, was really interesting. Um, it's, it was like... People going into biotech were proud of some deviance, you know, out of the closet and proud, instead of ashamed as they thought others expected them to be. So I try to um, unpack the shifting moral economy that produced these feelings in the book. Great. 
Now, a major argument argument of the book, and this is something that you present right in the introduction, is that the development of first-generation recombinant DNA drugs did not significantly divert or distort science. You show here that the projects were driven by the biologists themselves. So why is this important um, as a corrective to the extent or traditional historiography of the field? Why does this point need to be made? And uh, can you talk about that a little bit for us? Well, um, critics of, of molecular biology's uh, commercial turn, you know, the, um, the new commercial projects of the 1970s and ever since, and again, uh, Phil Murawski um, settled this in Science Mart, um, critics talk as if these new goals were imposed from outside and diverted the scientists, breaking their intellectual momentum um, in what was then a um, very highly respected, high-prestige high field, molecular biology, and corrupted its culture, like, overnight. Um, I'm arguing that we have, to, we have to understand that shift towards commerce is coming largely from within the science as the field was adapting to new cultural conditions. So, but look, I'm not denying changes in molecular biology that would um, be perceived as corruption um, from the standpoint of the early Cold War basic research ideal uh, that was you know, prevalent around 1975. I'm just describing these changes. I'm exploring their drivers inside and outside biology, and I'm trying to show how the change was fairly modest and gradual. There was no huge con- discontinuity, but I'm not denying that there was change. In, in my larger perspective, these biologists were rediscovering an, an older way of doing research um, you know, in intimate association with the drug and other industries, like I was mentioning before. I feel that there's been a much larger tradition of this, and the molecular biologists um, were rediscovering uh, a tradition, uh, a way of, of collaborating with industry that had dwindled in the early Cold War but had never really disappeared in some other life science fields. So, um, you know, from the big picture perspective, we have to take seriously the role of scientists as, as, you know, political and economic actors, always remaking their field um, and its social role in the context. We shouldn't treat them as like hapless boffins or puppets or scheming villains or whatever if we want to escape the old Cold War historiography of internalism versus externalism, political versus intellectual explanations of scientific change. I'm trying to do both at the same time. Great, thank you. Now, a lot of the action, as you've already um, talked a little bit about, takes place in the last few decades of the 20th century. And I think by any accounts, um, especially coming from um, a perspective uh, from my end of things, where I'm mostly you know, looking at and thinking about and talking about the 16th and the 17th century, anything even 19th century feels super recent to me, let alone um, end of the 20th century. So can you talk a little bit about um, kind of methodology, right? So let's get into some methodology and source kinds of issues. For you, what are some of the challenges of doing work on very recent history like this? Um, well, it, it is extra hard uh, methodologically. Uh, it's, it's extra hard for, for two reasons. One, like you say, it's recent science, and, uh, and it's extra, extra difficult because it's commercial science. Um, but to focus on the, on the problems that come from recency, um, you know, there's, the documents aren't in the archives yet, right? Even if they are, even if they exist, and some documents may never, you know, may not exist on paper. This, a lot of these events take place in the age of email, right? Where, where, um, you know, the records have have probably long since ceased to exist. Sure, you know, in the '70s and much of the '80s, people were still keeping paper correspondence, but those people are still not retired, right? They haven't. They're professors or or um, businessmen, and they're not giving their papers to some public archive. Um, also, uh, 
you know, not only are these people still uh, active and alive, some of them have uh, deep pockets and big egos. And, you, you know, there's some, these are some, there's some people involved here that you seriously do not want to offend, um, you know, if you, don't, if you want to uh, avoid the kind of lawsuit that you can't afford as a, as a history <laughs> professor. <right? laughs> so it's a bit scary a, as well. So you do have to rely on documents and not just hearsay, partly for legal reasons, and also because it's, you know, it's just more reliable uh, way of accessing the past, as I'm sure we, we all agree. Um, and, you know, uh, so I get the documents uh, by looking at the, the court records from intellectual property litigation. There is no, um, there's very few exceptions to this rule, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it as a, as a hard and fast statement. Um, if a drug is worth a lot of money, it has been the subject of an of a expensive and lengthy uh, infringement um, action. And when, um, when patent litigation takes place, companies put a lot of money into, uh, into reconstructing and documenting um, their version of history. So um, they bring all kinds of great documents um, to court, uh, stuff that it would be very hard for historians in general to obtain. Um, from any era, you know, really ephemeral stuff like logs of telephone conversations and, you know, lab notebooks and this, this kind of stuff. The evidence is, is produced through the legal discovery process. Unfortunately, and so you have like the world's, you know, best and most highly uh, compensated um, uh, corporate lawyers working for you as your research assistants. <laughs> That's great. And it's a bit of a joke because like uh, they're not really working for you and, and where the papers end up is in a, is a very historian unfriendly um, uh, places and not organized at all in a way that historians um, can use. So it's, it's an expensive, difficult kind of, of research um, to, to get those documents for any historian who's used to working in a government or, or an academic archive. Anyway, so that's how I overcome the, the document problem. Um, also, I do use oral history, um, but uh, the oral history comes with its own problems. Um, you know, not just the usual thing where you're talking to living people who have their own kind of version of events that they're, they're, they're trying to promote. Um, but because I'm not a, really a complete outsider here, I remember these events, you know, as a kind of a aspiring or budding um, biologist, I, I kind of tend to uh, remember the past in ways that are not so different from the, um, from the people that I'm interviewing, uh, at least when they're on the, the general issues. And, and that, that sort of uh, magnifies the, uh, a general perspective problem you get with history of recent events, because you remember these events, at least from reading the newspaper or whatever, and so you already have some sort of you know, accretion of opinions about what happens and what it meant, and that, that makes it hard to obtain the, the correct kind of perspective for a historian on the events you know, from uh, somebody who's impartial and uh, forms opinions on the basis of evidence rather than prejudice. So I do use oral history. Uh, I have to um, because to fill in gaps, but also you know, I want to be able to talk about what it felt like for, um, for the actors at the time and what was important to them and, and whatnot, but, um, but you know, I have to use extra caution there. Great. So let's get into the chapters themselves. So there's some really fascinating stuff happening here and unfolding um, that you accessed with and um, through use of these really fascinating documents like uh, the corporate documents and the oral histories. So the first chapter describes how basic molecular biology research developed in a Cold War context. And you've already um, gestured a little bit toward this Cold War context in your kind of early remarks. 
You talk about the rise of biophysics after Hiroshima and also describe the ways that the operon theory of gene regulation really becomes a fundamental concept after 1961. And this model, this operon model, becomes a paradigm, as you put it, defining the discipline. So the, I mentioned the word paradigm. I probably am not the only one. Um, probably there are some listeners as well who are immediately going to think Kuhn, structure, science, scientific revolutions. Um, and indeed, um, you argue here that we can understand this period in terms of Kuhn structure of scientific revolutions and sort of in terms of a kind of normal science for the Cold War. Mm. So can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Sort of how are you bringing um, Kuhn and these ideas to bear on understanding and interpreting what's happening in this context? Um, well, uh, you know, Kuhn was not just a perceptive analyst of, um, of, of science in his day, in the in the fifties and sixties, he was also an architect of um, of science as it was conducted in the in the U.S. in the early Cold War. And the paradigm concept that he coined as a descriptive way, you know, talking about what science is like, was also normative and made um, made basic research uh, what it was uh, in, in the U.S. So 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 we we have to look at Kuhn not just as some sort of from you know somebody who's a powerless scholar who's merely describing. He was super influential among the scientists and policymakers and so on, as well as the historians and philosophers, in the early Cold War generation. And on Kuhn's idea, progress in a science can only come from, you know, puzzle-solving dictated by the field's uh, traditions, intellectual and institutional um, structures that are all in- inherited. So there's this internalist, strongly internalist view, to use the language of the day that we're still a, a bit uh, afflicted with, I think, in, in HPS, the internalism, externalism thing. So um, good research in science had to come from the paradigm. It could not be imposed or managed from outside the scientific field. Well, if that's true as a description of, of you know, how progress occurs, then only leading scientists within a field were competent to pick the most worthwhile research to fund, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that scientists need to be left to do their own thing free from commercial or political domination, and to be given money to distribute in a peer review kind of way. And that, that is kind of the, um, the, post, the, the immediate post-war settlement in the U.S. in terms of science-society relations that played a, a, a key role um, in the Cold War and this era of, uh, you know, of basic research. Now, the, um, the ideology of basic research, Kuhn's an architect of that. I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I'm referring here to Roger Geiger's Work on this, and there's this, this what he calls the hypertrophy of basic research in U.S. universities at the time. That's um, that's valued by society because of this, well, for for a number of reasons. Partly the logic of Kuhn, um, and uh, and and because all this money is, is given to them for um, you know for buying into that, and which means distancing themselves in many fields from commercial sponsorship and other practical applications. Now the implicit contrast for Kuhn's description of how good science happens, you know, internally driven, the implicit contrast is with Stalinism, right? So this is a, this is a rationale for the generous public funding um, of science, as I said, but also for scientists to look only to each other for ideas and to overlook or forget the applications of their ideas, even like, you know, the microwave laser, as, as you know, as, as, as um, Paul Foreman, uh, you know, influentially shows, scientists think they're doing, these physicists even though they're funded on secret projects by the Navy, feel they're doing science for science's sake. You know what I mean? And that's what's, that's what's justified by Kuhn 
and approved of by the by the national security state. That I would call it a false consciousness of scientists at, at the time, um, to use a, a kind of a hackneyed Marxist uh, expression that for me still has traction. Um, uh, anyway, so they're all doing apolitical basic science, science for science's sake. And the fact that that can take place in the United States is a sign of, of the United States' legitimate leadership in the free world struggle with communism. So Kuhn is creating an ideological weapon for the U.S. struggle with, with, with communism, as well as helping scientists in a certain way carve out a space where they can be free from politics if they follow the, those rules. I'm building here on, on work by Steve Fuller and, and Steve Shapin, as um, some listeners probably recognize. But more of it's um, built on a recent literature in diplomatic history and art history that shows how high culture played such an important role in the early Cold War, and a very carefully calculated one, to show that the United States was the home of the, you know, the highest arts and sciences, was to show its superiority, the, you know, capitalism superiority to, to communism, where you have direct political interference in the sciences and the arts to make them useful to society. Um, so, uh, so that whole ideology supported the hypertrophy of basic research in, in universities in, in Geiger's language, um, just like it supported a hypertrophy of modernism, high modernism in the arts. And Kuhn naturalized all this. But it was not natural, right? It was a strategy and a product of the national security state. Um, maybe the ideology of basic research was good for scientists who were um, you know, benefiting in terms of funding, but not necessarily for society as a whole. Like, everyone's living in fear of the, of the bomb here. Um, anyway, uh, the economic woes of the 1970s brought this era of detente. Uh, generous public funding for basic research faltered, not just in the physical sciences. NIH funding and real dollars plateaued in the early and mid-1970s. Far too much is made of like the, the, the new money that came with the, uh, Nixon's war on cancer, the Cancer Act in 1971. That wasn't new money. That was rebadged money for the most part. Actually, it only reversed uh, the previous year's slump. And you have a flat plateau right through the middle of the 1970s of NIH funding in real dollars because you have to remember the rampant inflation at the time. And NSF, which was an important but, you know, by comparison to NIH uh, minor uh, funder of molecular biology, its, its funding for life science is, uh, actually declined in real dollars through the 70s. So, the science, so molecular biology is rapidly growing field. It's growing in numbers of people as well as the expense of the research. And the money is being cut off. Um, and this is when you see the entrepreneurial biologists now looking for other ways, right, to, to, to keep going to stay at the, the head of their, their field. Um, so as that basic research ideology started to, you know, to, to waver, um, biologists, um, you know, found some, a new ideology to justify their, their work, you know, beyond science for science's sake. They were going to make um, inventions. They're going to make their molecular biology useful for human health and useful for the economy um, which was, of course, the industrial economy in the U.S. was tanking at, at the time. So practical problems and commercial backing became attractive. Not everybody within the field liked this new view, and that's just why it was controversial in the 70s. Great. Thank you so much. And this actually really beautifully takes us into um, at least some of right the next several chapters. So the next chapters of the book, chapters two through six, track um, some of these individual inventions and use the tracking of these inventions to really unfold this story of these gene jockeys in, I think, a really fascinating way. So let's get to at least some of them. Chapter two tracks a three-way contest between Genentech and two academic labs to clone insulin and produce it in bacteria. So 
you state here in the chapter that the first pharmaceutical that molecular biologists made was always going to be insulin, as you put it. Um, so can you maybe um, open up this chapter and this part of the story for listeners by talking a little bit about that? Why was it always going to be insulin, and why was insulin so attractive for these scientists? Well, the, the, the scientists' key motive remains, even as they turn to commerce, um, you know, uh, scientific um, credit, honor. Um, and there's this tradition of insulin as, an, as like the subject of cutting-edge research in, in biology, right? Going way back, Banting and Bast, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very important, um, from the University of Toronto, very important uh, establishing that, uh, that, that life's, laboratory-based life science could actually produce useful new medicines in the early 1920s. They won a Nobel Prize for this almost immediately. Um, in the, in the 1930s, J.J. Abel, who was like the leading American pharmacologist of the day, was the first to crystallize a protein, and it was insulin was the, was the protein that was crystallized, you know, which is, was at the time taken as, um, as a cr- crystalline purity was taken as the as ultimate purity. Um, and he developed some important techniques uh, in, in, in doing that. Um, Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin in the U.K. was using insulin to um, ad- advance the field of, of protein um, Biophysics, X-ray, X-ray crystallography. Uh, her uh, her main um, subject, you know, her main material that she was using was um, was insulin. She got a Nobel Prize. It wasn't only about insulin, but um, so this is very very high profile stuff. And of course, in the '60s, um, Fred Sanger. Uh, actually, it's a little earlier. Fred Sanger at, also at at um, at, at Cambridge. Um, uh, obtains the amino the, the full amino acid sequence of the first. Protein, that's insulin again. Uh, Nobel Prize there for his protein sequencing technique. And it becomes, it's a classic object of, of understanding um, how proteins work, which means it's a you know, central uh, uh, high-status object within the field of, of molecular biology. Um, so it was something that was, um, that, you know, that was reliably uh, a field of research in which they could gain maximum kind of honor. Um, it was also famous, not just in the scientific you know, imagination, but in the public imagination, right? It's a symbol. It remains a symbol of, li- of a life-saving medicine that came- comes from heroic biomedical research. And you only have to look at the films um, uh, about, you know, uh, biomedical research. The, the Canadian film The Quest on Banting and Best, you know, shows how heroic they are staying up all night in the lab to save lives, um, you know, through their, uh, through their research, purifying this protein um, to, and, uh, and treating the, the um, diabetic patients. Um, but it was also tractable. So apart from being, um, you know, some, uh, the kind of project that was sure to, you know, or likely to win them honor to be the first to produce a human protein in bacteria and then make it useful for medicine, huge honor in that, um, huge kind of public credit in that, right? Um, they, they, there was good reason to believe that. It was also tractable. It was technically sweet to work on insulin in, in many ways. It had a few issues, but it was a small protein extremely well characterized. There was no better characterized protein because it had been studied so much by molecular biologists for such a long time. You could obtain it, you know, just by making a phone call with a purchase order, get pure insulin because it was a well-established pharmaceutical. Um, so it was tractable and, and um, technically because so much was known about it. Um, also, it was, it was saleable to pharma. Now, there was not a lot of money in it, right? It was very hard to, to show that this was going to be a big money product, but it was something you could get some money for. The main reason for this, it was a, it was a fairly, there are only so many diabetics, but it's a, it's a, it's a fairly big market that diabetics have to take 
um, insulin for the rest of their lives. I think it was on the order of two or three hundred million dollars for the U.S. the annual insulin market. Um, but the key thing was, but it was insulin was still being manufactured from um, from uh, pork and beef pancreas um, to supply the world's needs. Um, there was some talk that uh, that the slaughterhouses were, you know, going to the source was going to be running running low in the in the in the near future. There was also some talk that there are a few patients who developed an allergy to the animal forms of insulin because they differ by a couple of um, amino acids. But the people who are allergic are a minuscule market, right? There's no money in, in developing a pharmaceutical just for them. Um, the, the cost of manufacturing the stuff. Uh, by making bacteria produce it, in genetically engineered bacteria produce it, and then purifying it, found to be much higher than the uh, established production methods from, from porcine insulin. So how are they able to sell it at all? Uh, apart from the speculation that there might, in the recent, you know, fairly, fairly uh, near future, be a shortage of, of the animal insulin, it was about control of the market and prestige. Lilly, who had, who had you know, bought the patents from um, Toronto, had held dominance in the insulin market ever since because of their early start. Lilly did not want to lose the North American insulin market. They had a tough competitor. The leader in the European market, Novo Nordisk, had, a, had substantial sales in the U.S. And so if Lilly's main competitor could buy the rights to this new, prestigious, supposedly superior, genetically engineered human insulin, then Lilly might lose its grip on the whole insulin market. And that's why it was worth some money to Lilly, even though that you know, it, it was not in itself uh, all that medically important um, uh, to to produce human insulin and bacteria. I even forgot to mention that Novo Nordisk um, had, in a fairly advanced stage of development, a way of converting porcine insulin to human insulin um, uh, amino acid sequence in the test tube. So there was really no justification to use genetically engineered bacteria-produced insulin just to serve those few patients who developed an allergy to. Um, uh, to, to the animal insulin. It was all about the, um, the competition between the two big firms and the insulin market that made the, made the, the new product saleable um, at, at all. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as I um, mentioned very early in describing this chapter, this was a three-way contest that you're describing here, and you describe um, what's happening in terms of the Harvard team, the California team, and then Genentech. Now, the victory of Genentech in this race helped set the stage, as you put it in the book, for later entrepreneurial biologists in the 1980s. Now, this was not, um, and this is an important point, I think, that the chapter makes, this was not imposed on biologists by drug firms. Instead, academic biologists themselves really played a central role in cultivating a market for biotech. And this um, sort of sensibility that uh, really emphasizes the role and the centrality of the role played by biologists themselves is something that we're going to see in the next chapter as well. So the next chapter, chapter three, looks at the clash between Genentech and a university biology group to clone and sell the second major product um, that the book traces, um, and this moves us from insulin to human growth hormone. Now, the chapter looks closely at how the culture 
and the ethos of academic molecular biology in the 70s was translated into the context of a small biotech firm. Now, the chapter makes the argument, um, and again, keeping in mind um, what we just talked about and keeping in mind the importance of this sort of notion of Kuhnian sort of shifts, right? You emphasize in this chapter that this translation from academic molecular bio to the small biotech firm was not radical. The general project of cloning protein hormones, as you put it, was determined, again, by molecular biologists themselves who were following what were at that point established protocols from their field and who expected a payoff. So how did this play out at Genentech? Can you kind of take us into um, what's going on there as a way of opening up and opening out um, what's happening in this chapter? Um, sure. Um, so uh, as, as Sally Hughes has described in the mostly on the um the insulin uh, story um, in her uh, book on the you know, early corporate history of Genentech, um, most of the young scientists who were the backbone of, of Genentech came from um, UCSF laboratory, their postdocs, um, and then they went into uh, Genentech from, um, from Boyer's laboratory, which at initially was only a paper transfer. They were conducting the work within the biology labs, but their salary was being paid not by the university but by Genentech, which was funded um, by, by investors. Now, um, they weren't sure that Genentech was going to work out, you know, in terms of a, a, a career. Um, and they wanted to make sure that they were going to be getting publication credit and scientific credit generally that they might be able to use later in an academic career. Um, and they, they succeeded. They got a lot of credit for, um, for cloning their synthetically produced um, insulin, beating um, Wally Gilbert's Harvard team um, that were similarly associated with, with Biogen. Um, and, uh, and they set up their own shop. And the way they did this, they, they were able to show that you could work uh, outside a university in a biotech, even physically separated from the university, and still um, be doing interesting research that would make it to the um, you know, feature articles in Science and Nature, the most prestigious publications. And you'd get full credit for that just like intellectual credit, just like you're working at a, um, at, at a good university. But in order to do that, they had to uh, force uh, Genentech to accept, you know, partly their terms, to let them direct their work in a certain way. Uh, the most obvious way is that they, um, they established a policy uh, at Genentech that publications would be allowed as soon as the patent application was organized. They could, they could, they could then publish fully and get full credit and there are business reasons for thinking this is a bad idea. There's a counter-argument, a business argument that it might be a good idea. In any way, they, they, they imposed their needs, you know, their career needs, kind of on, on the, um, the, the business practices that there would be open publication. Um, also, uh, they insisted in the early days of Genentech that they be allowed to do quite a bit of curiosity-driven research, um, so long as they followed protocols that would uh, allow for the patenting of, of the stuff as, as, the, as they went along. And Genentech's success, culminating in the very uh, successful stock market flow of, of, of 1980, encouraged a lot of other people to go into biotech firms or more senior people to start biotech firms um, because they wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, detract too much from their scientific standing and their academic um, career or, or career prospects. Um, you can see all kinds of, uh, apart from that kind of, you know, preserving the structures of, of how you get academic and scientific credit. You can find other ways in which the culture, academic molecular biology culture, was transplanted into the biotechs. One of the more obvious ones is the way the, the um, departments within the companies reflected 
the, um, the departments, that is to say, the organization of labor within biology departments. You know, protein chemistry was a separate department from molecular genetics, that is cloning, right? Sequencing would be set up in a separate lab, which was common at, at the time. So they mirrored the work organization of, of the academic labs that they came from, too. And there's a lot more kind of subtle uh, transplantation of, of the lab culture. Now, it's not to say that it, in this sort of different soil, it didn't grow a little differently, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a much more kind of gradual and, and, and kind of subtle change than it's often been, been made out to be. Now, you mentioned growth hormone. Um, this was a project that was attractive for purely scientific reasons. Peter Seberg, uh, and we know this, this is a historical fact, that the, the leading researcher in the cloning of, of growth hormone um, took it up with no commercial knowledge or connection or even without the knowledge of his, uh, his, his postdoctoral supervisors at, at, uh, at UCSF. He was doing this almost secretly um, because his supervisors had another project in mind for him, right? He was doing this for, uh, for intellectual reasons. It was a sweet kind of project, technically and, and intellectually, to clone growth hormone. First of all, growth hormone was, was a big uh, protein hormone. It was some, it's something like 190 um, amino acids. So cloning it would, would be like the biggest human hormone, much bigger than insulin, produced in, in bacteria. It would show that you could do that. It was kind of that you could, that you could take... Uh, a messenger RNA um, and make a faithful copy in DNA using the complementary, uh, you know, the cDNA process that's that long, which is something, you know, not at all clear uh, that you could get a faithful replication of a messenger RNA that's, that's you know, complete like that. Um, and then put that in bacteria, get it to express um, properly. Um, knowing the sequence of it, which you could get after you'd cloned it, it wasn't fully, the protein sequence was not fully known at the time. Um, and uh, was uh, was was interesting intellectually because growth hormone has a couple of closely uh, related hormones, uh, both in human biology and in animal biology. There's a um, there's a hormone called um, somatomammotropin, which was already known to be closely uh, related, similar in some way to uh, to, to growth hormone somatotropin. Um, and by looking at the different sequences of those two in humans, and then you find the related sequences in rats and so on, you could address issues in the molecular biology of evolution. It was a big, uh, it was an important hypothesis that at the time that one of the ways evolution happens is for a gene to be duplicated, and then its sequence and its function can diverge after that duplication. You could actually look at an example of that if you got, if you managed to clone some atomomotropin and human growth hormone and compare their sequences. There was another really important um, intellectual project for molecular biologists that could be accessed through this uh, growth hormone project, and that is to try to get at the way in which gene expression is regulated in, in, uh, in mammals. Not at all understood at the time. Um, first of all, it was known that, uh, that a good deal of regulation might occur. They know this from bacteria. After the RNA is transcribed, some um, you know, RNAs have to be processed and they have to be uh, spliced together in, in higher animals. And that processing and splicing um, had something to do with, you know, with, with the levels of gene expression. It was under control, in other words. Um, the most important uh, aspect of, of gene expression control, though, was turning on and off transcription, the, the making of the RNA from what's called a promoter, the beginning of the, of the, of the DNA. And um, once you had the, the, the sequence of uh, the, the DNA from the final expressed version of the mRNA, you could use that to go back to the genome, the, chromo- the, the DNA as it existed in the, in the chromosomes of humans or rats, and uh, it was thought to be a, a reasonably easy step to get the chunk of the chromosome 
that was at the beginning of the gene where you could then clone that and get the sequence of the promoter. This is like the, the, the operon for the higher organisms. And that was like the holy grail of molecular biology at the time. So that's why Seberg went into the cloning human growth hormone and his many problems, both with his uh, UCSF supervisors and, uh, and, you know, and, and with Genentech that it eventuated in this massive lawsuit, um, kind of come from this sort of uh, uncertain relationship of academic research to intellectual property at, at the time when he, when he was found that he had to continue his existing project under more con- commercial conditions. Thank you, Nick. Now, the, as we move from here into the rest of the book, um, we move into a chapter on interferon. Now, I'm just going to briefly gesture out what's in this chapter because I do want to make sure that we have time to get to what's going on in chapters five and six, which brings us right into the courtroom. And since you were talking about the importance of courtroom documents um, to sort of um, provide at least the basis of part of the archive for the book. I want to make sure we have at least a little bit of time to talk about what's going on there. So chapter four looks at the contest to clone interferon and thus commercializing a potential cancer cure. This chapter is going to argue that the coincidence of interferon mania and the emergence of recombinant DNA technique was formative in generating the first wave of biotech firms. You call it a gold rush, um, and you talk here, and I'll just mention this for listeners who are particularly interested in this aspect of the story, you talk about the IPO moment for Genentech as something that's crucial in measuring Genentech scientists' value as scientists. So this moves us from um, a kind of discussion of scientific credit um, that you talked about in the context of the previous chapter to talking about um, different ways of construing value um, in this changing um, marketplace uh, for these biologists. Now, this moves us um, from here to a chapter that looks at the contest over erythropoietin. Am am I pronouncing that horribly wrong or just mostly wrong? A lot of, um, it's it's pretty close. Uh, uh, I call it erythropoietin, but uh, but there are other pronunciations out there. Let's just call it EPO. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> call it EPO. So long as you don't capitalize it. Okay. <laughs> so this was, as you call it, a biotech blockbuster. It was the most profitable and widely used drug to come from recombinant DNA technology. And the chapter looks at how the race played out in the courtroom in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, you argue here that biologists play a major role in the lawsuits that, as you put it, established the patent regime that protected first-generation recombinant drugs. Now, this and related legal struggles led to higher federal courts um, essentially making de facto science policy that had really wide-ranging ramifications for biotech. Now, among um, these ramifications, and this is where I kind of want to um, ask if you talk a little bit about this, the U.S. federal courts defined which patents could be defended to reward and incentivize certain kinds of commercial molecular bioresearch and not others. So can you talk a little bit about this? In the context of what's happening in this part of the book, how are um, U.S. federal courts really um, effectively making this kind of science policy and, and making um, these kinds of um, decisions? Um, well, yeah, EPO turned out to be the best-selling biotech uh, drug ever. Um, and in the U.S., the, um, the rights to all forms of EPO, essentially, were, um, were granted by the second-highest federal court, just below the Supreme Court, uh, to Amgen, uh, who were the first to clone um, 
the, the gene. They got it from uh, genomic DNA, which means it had a lot of interruptions in it, you know, places that had to be spliced out, which is not the preferred and, and technically sweet way of making a, um, a, a long protein, human protein in bacteria. The preferable form is the complementary DNA that, that's read off uh, a, a fully processed messenger RNA. But anyhow, um, uh, to make a long story short, Amgen did clone um, the genomic, uh, you know, uh, the, the chromosomal DNA for, um, for human EPO first, and were able to make it in Chinese hamster cells. Uh, another company, Harvard-based company called um, uh, Genetics Institute, um, had been working on it very hard for a while. And, uh, but they, using essentially the same cloning technique, actually pioneered by one of the researchers at that company, Ed Frisch, um, they, they came um, second to the genomic DNA, but they were the first to get the, uh, the, the cDNA. Um, and so they went ahead and, and, uh, you know, and, and moved their product toward development too, their EPO product. Uh, the final protein, uh, not greatly different. Um, but the way of making it, somewhat different. So the question is, was it a different invention or not? Um, the, in the U.S., the, federal, the high federal courts gave, uh, gave Amgen kind of blanket rights to all, all first-generation EPO based on their being first with the, um, the uh, genomic DNA cloning. But in Europe, the corresponding um, courts uh, gave a, 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 a smaller scope to Amgen's invention and um, allowed Genentech, sorry, allowed um, Genetics Institute uh, patent rights over the uh, first-generation EPO made from, um, from cDNA, human cDNA put into hamster cells uh, grown in culture. So the U.S. courts afforded very wide scope to what uh, com- uh, the uh, rivals of Amgen argued was a, a rather obvious and unoriginal um, invention. Um, that is, this is referring to the way in which um, uh, EPO was cloned based on uh, existing public information and, and, and techniques. And, they were, and Amgen was in a particularly weak position because the key techniques, um, which is to use uh, multiple sets of synthetic oligonucleotides as probes of a, of a genomic library, were invented by the principal researchers at their rival genetic institute. So they really had a, a weak case to originality. Um, but they were there first, and the federal courts went out of their way uh, bent over backwards to uh, not only to afford them a wide scope, uh, but to uh, to define the level of originality uh, to set the bar extremely low. And that's the science policy that governed biotech for, for quite some time, set by that Amgen and Amgen 2 court decisions, um, that you didn't have to be very original and you'd get a very big uh, winner, winner um, takes all payoff uh, from being first to clone anything by, um, by uh, almost any method, no matter how obvious. Now, I argue in the book that by setting the originality bar low and by over-rewarding, I think, um, first comers, uh, they discouraged methodological innovation uh, in, in the life sciences. And this is particularly true because the, um, the, the best targets for cloning um, you know, protein, human proteins and turning them into, into drugs were a limited set of low-hanging fruit that biologists had been working on, publicly funded biologists had been working on for decades. And when those low-hanging fruit were all taken, it became sort of too hard to get uh, the next crop of, uh, uh, of drugs um, unless you could be rewarded for inventing genuinely new methods for doing so. So I feel the federal courts, uh, federal, U.S. federal courts, low bar on inventiveness and, uh, and broad scope, giving winner-take-all uh, large rewards, discourage the kind of innovation um, that was 
bringing investor money into academic molecular biology labs to do the kind of um, more basic research that advances the field. Great. Now, now the next chapter also um, moves us not only into a new case study, right, a new drug, um, but also moves us into um, another area of this story about science policy in the courtroom. So chapter six looks at competition to develop a tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA, that could be marketed as a heart attack drug. So how did the race for TPA play out in the courtroom, or um, what are some of the most important things about um, that courtroom um, playing out um, in the case of TPA that we need to understand to understand the larger point that you're making um, in this part of the book? Okay, well, um, TPA is a, is a protein that the, um, the human body uh, makes itself to regulate clotting, and the idea was already out there. It was already extensively researched, so a, a, again, a low-hanging fruit that um, that if this drug could be made cheaply enough, uh, it might be useful. If the protein could be made, made uh, cheaply enough, it might be useful as a drug to treat people right after heart attacks, where um, kind of secondary clotting does a lot of the, the damage. Um, so uh, Genentech hooked up with uh, one of the main um, uh, clinical researchers who'd been working on it for, for ages, and the, um, their rival in this story was uh, Gan Genetics Institute, the Harvard-based um, very uh, very prestigious uh, biotech. Now, um, they each had their own big drug company um, uh, partners um, in this, which was typical of the day. Uh, Genentech cloned uh, the, the native form um, first. Uh, it was a bit like the, the EPO story initially. Uh, Genentech, uh, sorry, Genetics Institute got it, got it second. Theirs had a minor variation, which the U.S. courts, but the British courts uh, did not regard uh, well, the U.S. courts regarded it as the same invention and gave the monopoly on the first generation to, um, to, genetic, to Genentech. Genetics Institute made a second-generation drug by tweaking this very complicated protein, um, eliminating and changing, eliminating some parts of it, changing other parts to improve its activity, its safety profile, because it's a clot-busting drug. It can lead to, lead to bleeding-type strokes. So you had to get the dosage just right. So partly the story is about that, how the biotech world is moving into modified, non-first-generation, you know, second-generation drugs, uh, protein drugs um, in, in this period, which is, the, you know, kind of the, mid, the mid-80s. Um, and, the, um, and, and also the way in which uh, the clinical trials uh, are a key part of that commercial and clinical development um, process, as you mentioned. Now, with, with TPAs, with a lot of pharmaceutical, um, pharmaceuticals these days, it's very hard to distinguish the benefit. In other words, um, you've got patients receiving kind of you know, com- uh, complicated therapy, and, um, and the contribution to survival made by the new, the new drug is small. And when um, and and uh, and also, which means you have to have a lot of patients enrolled in a trial, and you have to design the trial very carefully. Um, big trials are more expensive, right? So it's going to be expensive um, if you're going to have to have a thousand patients or whatever in each arm. Um, and these are taking place in intensive care units, right? It's the place, kind of place where you get billed four thousand dollars a day. So you can imagine the expenses accruing from thousands of patients enrolled in a trial like this. And because the rest of the treatment is so complicated, you have to set those background variables, which must be the same in all in, in both arms of the trial for every patient. You have to set those at just the right level that will show your drug to the to, to optimum benefit. 
So you have to do a lot of exploratory trials first that are not statistically convincing, right? Phase two trials to try to get those background conditions right so you get a, have an idea where if you scaled it up, you'd be treating the patients in such a way that your drug would give patients better survival than if they didn't get the drug. Right? Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. So it's about designing these very expensive trials. They cost buckets. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, billions of dollars today. Um, and that can make or break uh, uh, a firm. Ultimately, Genentech was able to get in there. Uh, they, got their, 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 they were able to show that their drug conferred a very small survival um, advantage. Uh, they spent so much money doing it. Uh, it created a, a financial crisis for the firm and led to their acquisition by by Roche. Meanwhile, um, Genetics Institute had, an, uh, had what looked like an improved second-generation um, product. They had a second-generation product first before um, Genentech. Genentech retarded them, as, as, uh, you know, slowed them down to market as long as they could through uh, expensive litigation everywhere. You know, tried to really um, you know, drive them into bankruptcy, but they were backed by, by the big British drug firm Welcome. And they finally um, got, uh, oh, that was there for their first generation drug. But the second generation drug, it was Bristol Myers Squibb that was backing them, Lenido Place it was called. Um, and they also had to do a big trial to show that Lenido Place was now better than the, the Genentech product, TPA, you know, native TPA activase, um, which is even harder because you're not comparing to a placebo, you're comparing to a, a, you know, an active product. Um, and they didn't get the conditions of the trial just right in the way that uh, Genentech um, was able to, and so they, they they actually did have a higher efficacy, but they also had a, a, a higher fatality rate um, in their big trial. And it was so expensive, they weren't going to go back and try it again under different conditions. And then that's what led to the demise of Genetics Institute. The expense of that uh, of that clinical trial, combined with the uh, the delay and the expense of, of the lawsuits brought by um, Genentech, you know, trying to monopolize the, the TPA field. Mm. Well, Nick, thank you so much. Now, uh, there is also um, a concluding chapter, and this is a chapter in which you explore some of the policy lessons um, that might emerge from this research. And rather than um, asking you to talk much about them, I'll just gesture at some of um, the really fascinating things that are going on in this last chapter of the book so that I don't keep you for another couple of hours, right? Um, Among the points that you mention in this chapter of the book is the importance of public support of curiosity-driven biology, as you put it, to further the productivity of biotech and perhaps moving to emphasize immediate rapid payoff less, um, keeping in mind the fact that with these low-hanging fruit already snapped up, new products are going to come much slower and much harder. So there's a lot of um, attention, that is to say, in this last concluding chapter of the book to the kinds of um, implications moving forward that we can take from your really detailed, I think, wonderful study of the last decades of the 20th century. Um, Well, um, so... Um, you know, as I say, uh, NIH and NSF's support for basic biology slumped in the mid-70s with the end of the early Cold War and the economic troubles uh, and, and so on. And, and the private sector, you know, biologists recruited the private sector effectively to continue, um, you know, their, their, their work as, as before. But in 1980, with the, you know, with the ascent of Reagan and neoliberalism, that way of life became, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, the... 
uh, favored over the old public support for science. And so public support for science in comparative terms has essentially been declining ever since, um, at least in, in, in life science. You know, as a, if you look at it as a percentage of GDP or whatever, I think about um, the, the, uh, the United States is, is paying for um, science about a third less of its uh, percent of GDP from the public purse than it, than it used to. So it's harder for scientists to pursue curiosity-driven research without um, a, a commercial partner. Now, there was this whole rationale that, uh, that, that um, the kind of research that a commercial partner is willing to back is the kind of research that will benefit medicine and society much better. And they look at this period that I've described as the, as the evidence for that. I don't think the evidence points there at all. What this period shows is that, um, that there was a lot of low-hanging fruit that were developed as medicines of some, uh, not particularly uh, earth-shattering, but you know, some uh, clinical value. Um, but ever since then, because the low-hanging fruit that had been you know, ripening over decades of publicly funded research were harvested, um, the, we can expect nothing like even that moderate public benefit from the, um, the, uh, the commercially driven um, uh, research that occurred in that period. So it was a unique, unique moment, this first generation of biotech drugs, this, this early crop that came from the um, uh, harvesting the, the low-hanging fruit. It's not the kind of paradigm for later developments. It can never really be reproduced. We need to think about, um, you know, if, if we want there to be curiosity-driven um, research that's really valuable, we have to fund it uh, publicly. Uh, you know, I think that the biologists were able to get commercial backing for what we now regard as kind of blue sky, um, academically driven projects, both because it was a bit cheaper to go from the, from the academic project to the drug then because of this low-hanging fruit effect. Some of the background work had already been paid for. And because there was this, you know, th- this, this era of rosy expectations about the wonders of genetic engineering. Um, so investors were more generous. They thought they could get rich, you know, uh, easily, like the early Genentech investors and so on. But, you know, it's a much harder world now for biologists and for, and for investors. And, uh, and we cannot expect the private sector just to, to pick up the tab for, um, for all socially useful and even in the long run economically useful, clinically useful uh, life science research. So, Nick, now that we're at the conclusion of the interview, of course, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have time to cover. Is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Um, oh, gosh, I wasn't uh, expecting that question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I hope I hope people will uh, will try the book out. I, it is, um, you know, it might uh, appear a bit technical, I try to uh, provide the kind of uh, technical nuts and bolts that make it, um, you know, the, the story convincing to a to a biologist, but at the same time make it possible to follow the story and to get the general, um, you know, uh, argument and to be convinced by the general argument, even if you can't follow the technical details. So I tried to be conscious throughout that I was writing to at least two different audiences: the, um, you know, the sort of the the general uh, reader, educated reader, stroke uh, historian of, of science. And also the, the the biologist, and to uh, and to tell the story in a way that was uh, even if not identical, um, was meaningful and consistent um, between the two. So don't be be put off. You can skim those uh, those technical sections, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so now that the book is out, and congratulations um, on the book. What's next for you? Are you working on anything right now that you're finding particularly inspiring? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm working on um, the history of. Uh, 
of obesity research, particularly in, in the U.S. since World War II. Um, I've discovered an interesting episode of, uh, of alarm over obesity uh, in the early 1950s, which nobody seems to have noticed before. I'm trying to reconstruct that episode uh, and to uh, look at what it shows us about the, um, the Cold War biomedical establishment and also the trajectory, the peculiar trajectory, I think, of public health um, uh, in the United States. So that's, that's an ongoing project. Uh, and, you know, obviously obesity is in the news now. As ever, I'm trying to find um, topics where the history of science can speak to scientists and science policymakers and, and not, just, um, not just humanities scholars. Wonderful. So best of luck with that ongoing project. And thank you again for making time. It's really been a pleasure. And it's a great book. So again, congratulations. All right. Thanks so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.